I'm Felix Bunnell, and we're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951 by Viking. Even before the Portland dock, she was booked full for her passage back north. Fifty first-class passengers, including former Governor McGraw, and 98 second-class. Seven other steamers were accepting bookings. Half of Seattle seemed to expect to make its fortune by going to Alaska, the other half by outfitting the prospectors. It was the same in the other coastal towns. San Francisco expected that it would naturally be the center of any gold rush. Portland hoped to capitalize on its quick transportation to the east. Tacoma had the Northern Pacific Terminal. Nanaimo, British Columbia, trumpeted the fact that the gold was in Canada and so was Nanaimo. But Seattle had the natural advantage of being the northernmost American rail port, plus the good fortune that Erastus Brainerd was in town and without a job to keep him busy. The Chamber of Commerce appointed a committee to see that Seattle got more than its share of the gold rush trade, and the chairman of that committee was Erastus Brainerd. The man who had failed as a frontier editor proved to be the most resourceful publicity man on the coast. He might not know a good local story, but he did know most of the important journalists in the East by their first names. He knew magazine editors and advertising rates, and he knew what questions an Easterner would want answered about going to Alaska. The chamber gave him a fat expense account to draw on, and in return Brainerd gave Alaska to Seattle. First, of course, he advertised. He placed more inches of ads for Seattle than all the other ports together had bought. His biggest splurge was for six full columns in Hearst's New York Journal, which then claimed the highest circulation figure in the country. He placed ads in rural papers with an aggregate of nearly 10 million readers. He put ads in all the major magazines, Cosmopolitan and Century, McClure's and Muncie's, Scribner's and Review of Reviews. He thought up devices for getting free publicity. He wrote a series of letters home, and whenever he heard of a newcomer to town, he gave him one of the form letters and had him send it to the editor of his hometown paper. He wrote articles for Eastern papers and magazines, including Harper's Weekly, and then quoted his effusions in news dispatches datelined Seattle, without mentioning that their author was Seattle's paid booster. Anything to link the two words, Seattle and Alaska, Alaska and Seattle. He had a staff full of stenographers write personal letters to every state governor and to the mayor of every community of 5,000 or more. The letters gave information about the goods anyone would need in Alaska and mentioned that anyone wanting further information should write to Seattle. Thousands did. He asked officials to send estimates of the number of people from their communities who would be going to Alaska so that Seattle could prepare to outfit them. Alaska and Seattle, Seattle and Alaska. He wrote an information booklet about the Klondike and the way to get there, only one way, of course, and persuaded the Secretary of State of Washington to print it and send it out in the name of the state government. The federal State Department sent copies to the governments of 15 countries, and in many of these the information was reprinted in official bulletins and in the press. Alaska and Seattle, Seattle and Alaska. Brainerd had folders of pictures printed, pictures of Alaska and the Klondike and Seattle, and sent them to every library in the country. Elaborate editions of the folders were sent as Christmas cards to every king in Europe and to the presidents of the South American republics. When their secretaries sent letters of thanks, Brainerd turned the letters over to the papers, and more news stories went out mentioning Seattle and Alaska in the same paragraph. The best story of all came from Germany. The Kaiser staff had been afraid to open the package containing the pictures. They thought it was a bomb. When the Post-Intelligencer printed its special Klondike edition, Brainerd's committee paid for nearly 100,000 copies and sent them to every postmaster in the country, to every library, and to 5,000 public officials, Seattle and Alaska, Alaska and Seattle. 
Amid the Brainerd-created clamor, the other claimant cities barely made themselves heard. They kept trying, but soon almost everyone except residents of the rival coast cities considered Seattle the gateway to gold. As the publicity went out, the prospectors came in, by the hundreds, by the thousands. The streets were crowded with men, hotels overflowed, and men rented out their barns. Flop in the hay, six bits. Prices inched up under the steady demand of men who, with their life savings in their pockets, were outfitting themselves for a trip into the unknown. The innocents would buy anything. They were starting on a trip where they would have to climb mountains and float down rivers, but in Seattle they could be persuaded to buy a still, large as a 50-pound lard can, in which to purify water. The tenderfeet, the Alaskan epithet Chichaco was just coming into use, were suckers for heating equipment. Whatever they did not know about Alaska and northwest Canada, they were sure it would be cold. One of the products offered in the Alaskan outfitting stores along First Avenue was a burner that would use coal, oil, or gas and fit into anything from an oil can to the largest range. A chichaco ruefully recalls. The sample burner kept going by the solicitors seemed to work all right. A lady who had been testing its oven qualities assured me it would bake potatoes beautifully. As proof, she held up a good-sized tuber that had been partially cremated. I bought the burner for $18. We set that coal-oil-gas burner up in our tent. It roared like a small Vesuvius in full eruption. Flames shot from every crack and opening in that stove. I worked the pump with frantic haste. It was no use. The whole thing was going to blow up. I started for the door of the tent, but a lad who had seen the burners work before said, There's no danger. He coolly took out his pocket knife, cut the lead connecting pipe, took the burner on a stick, and threw it outdoors. There was a good many suckers in Seattle those days. The Seattle banks combined a setup and a say office to convert the prospector's gold to cash, and Brainerd began a successful lobbying campaign to get Congress to assign Seattle a government essay office. Though he conducted one of the most masterful publicity campaigns of all time on behalf of Seattle, a campaign that helped hundreds of his friends get rich, Brainerd did not cash in on the gold rush himself. Not that he didn't try. While propagandizing for Seattle, he also organized a nationwide campaign to get Erastus Brainerd appointed as the United States Consul in Dawson, Yukon Territory. Twelve senators, nine governors, and numerous representatives, editors, bankers, businessmen, and collectors of etchings wrote to the State Department, urging creation of a Dawson consulship and Brainerd's appointment. But this was a Brainerd campaign that failed. He was left in Seattle to watch his friends and associates grow rich off the people and trade he had helped to attract. Every business prospered. Real estate values boomed. Papers increased their circulation. Anyone who owned or could lease a ship, no matter how old, no matter how unseaworthy, could find passengers. One captain hitched a series of rafts behind the ship, loaded 200 passengers and a herd of cattle aboard the rafts, and started north. When a storm blew up in the Gulf of Alaska, he had to be restrained from cutting the rafts adrift. When the party landed at Dutch Harbor, he sold his passengers the cattle that had come with them, at a markup of a thousand percent ahead. Ships were needed desperately and Brainerd's friend, Robert Moran, who had been mayor at the time of the fire, went to work to meet the demand, Brainerd recalled later. When I went to Seattle, Bob Moran simply had an ordinary boat-building establishment and a little marine railway on which he could haul up schooners and all that sort of thing. Shortly after that, he took a contract to build a harbor tug for the Revenue Cutter Service, which he built successfully. Then he built a torpedo boat for the government. Then he built 14 steamboats for the Yukon River, the trade in that country being started then. And, by the way, he personally navigated those 14 river sternwheel steamboats of three-and-a-half feet draft through the North Pacific Ocean and Bering Sea to St. Michael, one of the most astonishing feats that ever was done in the way of navigation. With Moran's success, the Seattle shipbuilding industry was firmly established. 
Of all the entrepreneurs who benefited by the gold rush, none did better than the operators of the saloons and the brothels and the dance halls along the skid road. With thousands of single men pouring into the city, men with money to spend and time to kill, the prostitutes were not far behind. Within two years after the strike in the Klondike, Seattle had become, according to a government report, one of the three main American centers of the white slave traffic. There were more saloons in the business district than there were restaurants or dry goods stores. The town was wide open and swarmed with easy money men, some going, some coming, and some satisfied to stay in Seattle. It was along the skid road that the most famous of Alaska's bad men, Soapy Smith, rounded up the gang that eventually operated the town of Skagway as its private enterprise. Soapy Smith, like Erastus Brainerd, was a part-time genius. He took a weird bunch of individualists, men who went by the names of Fatty Green and Kid Jimmy Fresh, Yank Few Clothes and Jaybird Slim, and organized them into a syndicate that not only ran all the gambling and robbery at the southern end of the gold trail, but even took over the United States Army recruiting station at Skagway during the Spanish-American War and assigned men to pick the pockets of the recruits who were taking their physicals. Soapy did not profit personally from his endeavors. When he was killed in a duel with a civil engineer who had laid out the town, and who, like Soapy, felt a proprietary interest in Skagway, Soapy's estate was $100 in cash and a satchel full of marked cards. As for Brainerd, he finally went to Alaska and worked there as a mining consultant. He did not prosper. Back outside, as Alaskans say, he went to Washington, D.C. as representative of the Seattle Chamber of Commerce. In 1904, he became editor of the Post-Intelligencer and, as representative of the better element, engaged in a historic journalistic duel with Colonel Blethen of the Times, the spokesman for an open-town policy. Brainerd lost. He moved to Tacoma and died there on Christmas Day, 1922. His death did not make the front page of either of the papers he had edited, and his obituaries did not mention that he had made Seattle the gateway to the gold rush. The wealth brought to Seattle by the prospectors who heeded Brainerd's carefully sounded calls helped finance the work of another local genius, Reginald H. Thompson, who was a city engineer during the years of the city's greatest growth. Without Brainerd, Seattle might not have tripled its population in a decade, climbing from 80,671 in 1900 to 237,194 in 1910. Without Thompson, it could not have handled the newcomers. An Indianan of Scotch descent, Thompson was 25 years old when he came to Seattle in 1881. A precise, school-teacherish Presbyterian, he decided at once that the town was in a pit and that to get anywhere it would be compelled to climb. But when he became city engineer in 1891, instead of climbing, he dug. He dug a sewer north to Lake Union, an enormous sewer far too large for a city of 40,000, some taxpayers complained. Next, he laid a pipeline over the hills from the Cedar River and argued the city council into 80,000 acres of land in the watershed to prevent pollution. With sanitation and the water supply attended to, Thompson turned his attention to the walls of the pit. The pit was formed by hills that rose abruptly from the bay. The most awkward of the hills were Denny Hill, which blocked the city's expansion northward toward Lake Union, Dearborn Hill, which stood between the business district and expansion toward Lake Washington, and Jackson Hill, which cut off easy access to the White River Valley. The grades on streets over the hills were 20% in some places. They were impossible for horse-drawn vehicles. Thompson felt that the bottleneck formed by the hill was the only real threat to Seattle's continued growth. In 1898, he began to apply to the hills the sluicing methods used in Alaskan mining. He literally washed the tops off them. Denny Hill went first. Five million cubic yards of earth were sluiced down onto the tide flats, and the maximum grade of the north-south streets was reduced to 5%. Another 3 million cubic yards came off the Jackson Hill and 2 million from Dearborn Hill. 
In all, 16 million cubic yards were washed away, and when Thompson was through, traffic could move easily north and south. Ballard and West Seattle were brought within the city limits. By 1910, the city was level enough to take advantage of the automobile, which greatly increased land transportation. Most traffic along the Sound had to flow through Seattle, and the city's dominance of the region was secure. Seattle was no longer a leading Washington city. It was the metropolis. And we'll stop there at the end of Section 3, which was called Gold. The next episode will start with Section 4, Hiram Gill and the Newspapers, 1910 to 1918. This is the Housebound Historian. We're reading Murray Morgan's Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, published in 1951 by Viking. I'm Felix Bennell. Join me for the next episode of the Housebound Historian.